Uh, wonderful to see you tonight. We're in the book of Romans, and tonight, Romans chapter 4, just a few, uh, just a few verses. And uh, so I'll give you a bit of an intro, but can you turn to Romans 4 if you have your Bible? And we'll begin looking at verse 9, because we finished at verse 8 last week. And so it makes sense to pick up where we left off. So here we are, Romans chapter 4, verse 9. As you turn there, I'll remind you, Paul wrote it, and he wrote it to people at Rome, believers, uh, primarily, and that's why it's called Romans. It actually is a letter uh, that he wrote to them and by extension to us. It has relevance to us down to this very day. See, that's, that's what distinguishes the Word of God from other literature. Other literature is time-bound and connected to a particular culture, but God's Word transcends people groups and time and culture and all the rest and is just as relevant, therefore, for us today sitting here in Houston, Texas in 2014 as it was for those in Rome almost 2,000 years ago. So here's what he says at the beginning of Romans chapter 4, verse 9. Is this blessing? So you have to stop there. <laughs> well, at least I do. And you have to ask yourself the question, what blessing? I love the word. Uh, I can't define it exactly, but we know it's a good thing to be blessed. Is this blessing? It's a particular blessing Paul is speaking of. What is it? Well, to, to get the answer, you have to back up a little bit, and I'll just refresh your memory. It's the blessing which the psalmist David spoke of specifically in Psalm 32. And it is referred to in the prior verses by Paul. So Paul is lending credence to what was written in the Psalms in his day. Paul knew it was the word of God. And so Paul is quoting David's words in Psalm 32, where David said, I'm blessed. A man is blessed if what? Well, you know something about David. Let me tell you, he had tremendous qualities and much virtue, but he was a human like you or I, and his humanity got the best of him on several occasions. Uh, and, and on one a horrific time, he committed a sexual act with someone who was not his wife. Uh, and I don't care what day you live in, this is taboo from God's point of view. Uh, don't give in to the culture today. Remember what transcends culture are God's guidelines for living. And his guideline always has been one man irreversibly bound to one woman. That is the context for physical intimacy. There is none other. So David violated God's standard and had relations with someone else's wife. Then on top of it, he arranged to have her husband killed. See, he was going to be found out. And so uh, he had her husband killed. So this is adultery. This is murder. This is not missing choir practice. This is like some heavy stuff. And can you imagine the load of guilt and condemnation? You know, the voice of your conscience. You don't need a preacher to point out everything. The God-given voice of your conscience. He's kind of instilled in us since he's a moral being. He has instilled in us a sense of morality. Listen, we know what's right. We know what's wrong. So David knew this was wrong. Can you imagine the sleepless nights? And who knows? He spoke of physical symptoms. He said, my body is wasting away as with the fever heat of summer. He experienced depression and all the rest because of his unresolved guilt. And then on some occasion, it occurred to him that God stood ready, contingent on his confession 
and repentance. Confession means agreeing with God. Repentance means turning to him. David decided to do that, and he found out that this God who is holy is also gracious and merciful and stands ready to forgive. And in that light, David wrote Psalm 32, and he said, Oh, man, it is such a blessing not to have my sin held against me. Can you just imagine that for a second? Can you just think, if you will, privately of what you're made of? Can you think of your behaviors and your thoughts? Can you think of your verbalizations even of late? You're not so hot, are you? You probably can't even stand sitting in your seat. Well, join the crowd, folks. This is our nature. Can you imagine Almighty God making the pronouncement, your sins are forgiven? I do not hold them against you. Look, we saw eight people preach sermons. Stephen, that was a blessing, and others. Thank you for letting us come to your baptism. It was a blessing. There they were in the baptistry. Did you see what was on the shirts that they wore? Forgiven. That's the most blessed, wonderful word imaginable. Forgiven by Almighty God with whom we have to make do. It's not that he's unaware of what we're made of. In spite of it all, he stood ready to forgive these, contingent on their willingness to take him up on his offer and to accept the means of forgiveness his way. They accepted the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus, who suffered enough for all of them and all of us. And now they wear this shirt, forgiven and If you know the Lord Jesus, even if you don't have the shirt, that is your status. And David said, I know about this. I'm someone deserving death before Almighty God. And instead, he pronounced upon me a new status. He said, David, you are forgiven. I do not hold your sin against you because you took me up on my offer to forgive your sin contingent on the sacrifice of a coming, in David's day, a a, a future coming Savior and Messiah. And David had to write about it. In fact, it was a song, Psalm 32. He had to write about it. And he said, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not hold his sin against him. And so that's the blessing. So now Paul, writing Romans, referring to that, is saying, is this blessing then on the circumcised? So we're getting a little graphic here, aren't we? This is sort of an R-rated church service. But there you see it right there. So what's Paul getting at? Look, here's the deal. David was Jewish. Did you know that? Yeah, and earlier on in the text, Paul spoke not only of David as an example of someone set free from sin by faith, but he also used Abraham. So he used two Jews. He used Abraham as an example of how one can be right with God simply by trusting him and believing in his provision for sin. Paul said, here's Abraham as an example because he's speaking primarily to Jewish people in this case. And here's David, two of your premier heroes of Judaism. Here's Abraham. He was justified by faith, made righteous by faith, and David too. 
Now, Paul, he's pretty smart, is anticipating a little bit of a problem with this that his first century audience has. You see, Abraham is Jewish. David is Jewish. Some might think, this is really a good deal, but I'm a Gentile. Apparently, it doesn't apply to me. And so Paul, in anticipation of this, raises the question, this blessing, which we all agree is a premier blessing, everyone wants to get in on it. Everyone wants to be right with God, have their sins forgiven, be granted a pardon, made clean. Who wouldn't want that? And so Paul asks the question, is this particular blessing, is it on the circumcised? Well, that's a reference for Jews, because the Jews had the practice of circumcision. Others did too, but the Jews practiced circumcision as an indication of the fact that God had entered into a covenant with them. God distinguished them from other people groups. He gave them privilege. He gave them on Mount Sinai the Ten Commandments, and they marked it by circumcision. So here Paul is saying, is this marvelous potential blessing of being forgiven, is it just for Jews? And he says, or, or is it for the uncircumcised? You see, can you see that word there in verse 9? That's a reference to the Gentiles. Circumcised, a reference to the Jews. Uncircumcised, a reference to the Gentiles. And he goes on to say, for we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. That's a quotation from Genesis chapter 15. So Paul is saying, This marvelous uh, righteousness was credited to Abraham by his faith. And everybody knows Abraham's Jewish, so does that leave the Gentiles out? Isn't Isn't it interesting how the tables have gotten turned over the centuries? Because now Jews like me (laughs) at one time have to ask the question, can we get in on what you Gentiles have? See, it's different because you're like the majority now, for now. But hang in there <clears throat> for now. So, and I remember this when I was on the verge of wearing that marvelous forgiven shirt in my heart. I remember thinking, but if I do this, I mean, how can I? I'm Jewish. Jesus is not for Jews, is he? He's, he's for yous, not for Jews. And so we look at the table. But in the first century, it was the other way around. Uh, the Gentiles were wondering, can we get in on this? It's all about Abraham. It's all about David. What about us? It's about, it's about the circumcised. It's not about the uncircumcised. And so Paul now answers his own question. Here it is, verse 10. How then was it credited? How was this right standing with God? What is the basis upon which it was credited to Abraham? Was it while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Now Paul answers, no, no, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So Paul's making the point, look at Jewish people. You're making a big deal over being Jewish and about being circumcised, and those are cool things, but you don't get saved by being Jewish. You don't get in on forgiveness by being circumcised. And to demonstrate this, Look at Abraham, who you hold in such high esteem. God put righteousness on his account. At what point in his life? He wasn't even circumcised yet. Genesis 15, verse 6, quoted earlier. Abraham believed God, 
and he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness, that's Genesis 15. But Abraham wasn't circumcised until Genesis 17. It's only two chapters, but it's several years later. What a marvelous point Paul, thinking like a lawyer, is making. I mean, you, that's it. He won the case, in my opinion. It can't be that Abraham's Jewishness or circumcision is what got him points with God, and it can't be that Gentiles can never be right with God by faith because Abraham was considered forgiven and accepted by God by his faith long before he was circumcised. That's Paul's point, you see. So he says in verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision. It's a sign. Not only that, a seal, it's a sign and a seal, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, look at this, which he had while uncircumcised. Circumcision is not what saved him. He was saved while uncircumcised, and circumcision was the external indicator of a very private and personal salvation that ensued in his life contingent on his faith in Almighty God. Does this remind you of something, a wonderful ceremony we practice today? It's baptism. We saw it tonight, didn't we? It's marvelous. But don't misinterpret what it is. What we just saw did not save those people. Jesus saved those people. You know what those people did being baptized? They told us Jesus saved them. Well, how did they tell us? It's a wordless sermon which is the clearest and most powerful sermon God could ever give. It transcends words. When they went down, they said, I identify with the death of the Lord Jesus. When they came up, they said, I identify with his resurrection. He has raised me to new life. When they went into the water, they said, it's H2O. It's a sign, it's a symbol of the cleansing, not water, it's water, of the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus. You know what they did? They said there was a time, and none of you people, me, was with them. It was private. I might have been, they said, in that room, the Connection Center. Someone might have prayed with me, but it, was, it was, wasn't very public. It was private. And at that time, I said, oh, God, you made a promise to me. You promised you would forgive me my sin, of which I have plenty. You said you'll do that if I accept your means of forgiveness. I now believe Jesus is the means of forgiveness. He suffered enough for me. And so, oh God, I trust your word. I trust you to fulfill your promise. That's what faith is. Faith is taking God at his word. God said, I will forgive you if you let me. <laughs> These eight said at a certain time, we weren't there, private, personal, wonderful, in so many words, they said, I believe you. Uh, I accept your means of forgiveness. And then they, in their hearts, heard God said, say, and I accept you. And God credited to their accounts the same right standing he did with Abraham eons ago. So that decision is, is marvelously personal. You can't do it corporately. It's not a group thing. It's a personal thing. An individual sinner needs a, needs a personal savior. 
they took Jesus as that, as that Savior. Well, I can't see uh, how he came to live in their hearts, nor could you. And so God gave us this marvelous portrait of it all to externalize a deeply personal, invisible experience. It's baptism. In baptism, they make visible what is internal. They make external what's internal. They say, I made a personal decision to accept Jesus as my personal Savior, and I'm showing you that through baptism. I would never minimize what we just saw, but I don't want to make it more than it is. It doesn't save. Jesus saves. This tells us he saved them. Isn't that an interesting parallel to circumcision? Because my people get hung up on circumcision. They attach too much to it. It's a sign and a seal. It's a sign of God's covenant with the Jewish people. I got that. But that doesn't give you right standing with God any more than baptism does. Can you please tell me what's wrong with us? Well, I mean a lot. But I mean in particular, this is what I mean. Don't you see that we're prone to focus more on the symbol of the reality than on the reality? You, you know what I mean? Look, this is a powerful symbol. Symbols are powerful. It's a wedding ring. But this isn't, ma this isn't marriage. This is the sign and seal of it. This is the symbol of a reality. And circumcision is not the reality. It's the sign and symbol of the reality. Baptism isn't the reality. It's a sign and a symbol of a glorious reality. I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I've died to the old person at odds with God. I'm not an adversary of his anymore. I've been raised to new life, and my new status is I'm a son. I'm a daughter. I used to be far off. I've been brought nigh by the blood of the Lamb. It's a powerful symbol of a reality. So there are some people who will say it saves, just like my people say circumcision is what makes you right with God. Oh, no. These are the wonderful blessings of God given as signs and symbols of a greater reality. And so Paul says, Gentile people, <laughs> oh, no. Uh, the circumcision is not what uh, includes or excludes anybody from being right with God, anybody, Jew or Gentile, can come to uh, the Lord Jesus by uh, faith. And so uh, this is all done according, it says in the middle of verse 11, so that he, Abraham, might be the father of all who believe. If you're a Christian, did you know Abraham is your father? Yeah, the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that's, that's Gentiles, that righteousness might be credited to them, that's Gentiles. It, it's, see, Abraham's status with God is by faith. He's right with God by faith so that all those who come to God the same way can call Abraham their father, even if you're a Gentile. But not only that, verse 12, and he's also the father of circumcision, that's Jews. So, so, so verse 11, he's the father of Gentiles. And verse 12, he's the father of Jews who, like Abraham, accept God's promise by faith. 
And so it says he's the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, that means not only are born ethnically Jews, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. A lady told me the other day, I love Jewish people. I love them, and I always listen to them. I sort of like it, but then I say, man, you have not met my family. So she said, I love Jewish people, and I'm so thrilled that ultimately all Jews are going to heaven. She's a member of another church. We don't teach that here. All those who confess their sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior are going to heaven. <laughs> Ethnicity, that doesn't do it. <laughs> that doesn't do it. So I was trying to explain to this lady, see, even here in Romans, um, Abraham is the father of the uncircumcised who by faith are considered righteous in God's eyes, and he's the father of the circumcised not just because they're circumcised, but if they also put their faith in the provision of God, just as Father Abraham did. So here's the deal, folks. If you ever want to wonder, what is it that, connects, that can connect a person to God? It's not your ethnicity. It's not religious affiliation. It's not baptism or circumcision. It's not going on a missions trip. It's not working at it. The only thing that, connect us, that can connect us irreversibly to God is our faith, our confidence in what he has provided as the means of connection. Jesus is called the mediator between God and man. He's the ultimate link between us and God. Our faith in him is what connects us to God and to one another. Paul's point, nothing else. And so, so, so here's the deal. Um, people in Paul's day might say, okay, it's not circumcision, but, you know, what about the law? Man, God said, Moses, come up on this mountain, Mount Sinai. It was an astounding experience. Israel is camped below, you know, thunder and lightning, all this stuff. God gives himself his sense of morality and ethics in the form of Ten Commandments to Moses. He's go down, give them to the people, tell them this is how you should live. Wow. God gave the law of Moses uh, to the Jews. He did not give them to other people groups. He didn't do that. The law of Moses was given to the Jews. It has become quite a source of pride for my people. Not in a good way. Uh, many of my people, not all, uh, think we're a cut above because we have been entrusted with the law of Moses. And so uh, Jews in Paul's day would say, okay, Paul, even if we acknowledge that it isn't circumcision which saves, we have the law. Surely that gives us special status with God. Now Paul responds to that. Remember, he's thinking like a lawyer here. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, how does Paul make a statement like that? 
God gave the law to the Jews through Moses 400 years after Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. How could Abraham and his Jewish descendants be justified by the law before it was even given? Well, I say once again, man, Paul, you won that case as well. Here's his point. Circumcision doesn't save. We cannot be saved by the doing of the law of Moses. Abraham is a premier example. He was considered righteous by God before circumcised and before he received the law. And I can't tell you, this is tremendously good news to the first century Gentiles because they're saying, wow, you see, if it's the law that saves, then only the Jews could be saved because only the Jews have the law. We Gentiles are excluded. But now Paul's point is, no, you're not. Because even the most premier of Jews, Abraham, was saved apart from circumcision and apart from the law of Moses. It's all by faith for every body. Then he makes this point. Not only is it not necessary for Gentiles to live by the law of Moses, the Jews can't even do it. Look at verse 14. If those who are of the law, those are Jews, if those who are of the law are heirs, if Jews inherit the promises of God, two things happen. Here's the first. Faith is made void. Look, i tell you something. You're either made right with God by complying with the law to the best of your ability, which isn't so good, and if you do that, faith is made void. Or you're made right with God, not by your works, but by trusting in his finished work. You see? So if even the Jews think they're going to be saved by the law which they have, faith is made void. Secondly, the promise is nullified. The promise of inheritance of salvation, of forgiveness, of not having sin counted against us, that promise is made void if it's by the law. Why? Look at it. If God said to people, my people or anybody, look, I'm going to make you a, uh, a great promise. I got an unbelievably great promise for you. I will forgive. I promise I'm going to forgive you. Cast all your sin behind my back. Count you as if you had not sinned. Uh, but there's a condition uh, you have to meet in order for this to be true. You have to keep the law. We're dead. Nobody has. Nobody has succeeded in keeping the law. So Paul says... Here's what the law does, verse 15, it brings about wrath. Look at that. The law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there's no violation. doesn't mean that the law, um, it doesn't mean that without the law we don't have sin, but the law makes it clear we are breakers of the law. For instance, if there's a sign posted out here on the Beltway or used road, it's a speed limit, let's say on used 35 or something like that, you know darn well you're exceeding the speed limit on a certain occasion because you don't want to be late for church. So you're speeding down Hughes Road, and you just know it because you're checking your mirrors to make sure a law enforcer is not around, but he is. He stops you, and he says, I've clocked you at 47. And the posted legal limit on speed, says right there on that sign, is 35. He says, do the math. You are, you are guilty as charged. You have nothing to say. 
you are a lawbreaker. Now, you've already been that way in your heart. Everybody knows that. But the law accentuated your inclination to break it because it's a posted regulation. You stared it in the face and said, no way, I'm doing what I want to do. You have no argument. You have no case. That posted sign uh, renders a verdict of guilty. Here's your ticket. See you in court. Pay your fine. Do whatever you want to do. That's what Paul is getting at. The law of God is wonderful. It's really good. When God says, do this, don't do that, he's not trying to cramp our style. He's saying, this is what I'm like. This is what I want you to be like. He's saying, I care about how you live. Anyway, we look the law in the face and we say, nah, I don't want to do that. It's the law that clearly defines our sin. It's the law that makes God's wrath entirely justifiable. The law can't give us the status of forgiveness. It can't save us. No, in fact, it brings about God's wrath. But where there is no law, there's no violation. If God says to us, I fulfilled the law for you, that's what my sinless, perfect son did for you then he has fulfilled the law, taken it out of the way, and now he says, if you only accept that, that's the basis upon which I will consider you to be in right standing. So it's in verse 16, for this reason, what reason? We cannot be justified uh, with God by being Jewish, by being circumcised, by being baptized, by doing the law. For this reason, it's by faith. Why? In order that it may be in accordance with grace. Okay, so there's something about God. He strongly desires to be known as a God of all grace. That's, he wants to be distinguished that way, a God of all grace. So he has reduced us to sheer and utter spiritual impoverishment. We have no defense we have no plea. We have nothing to offer. And then if we're moved to say, oh, God, forgive me, a sinner. Thank you for suffering and dying in my stead. Come into my life. Change me from the inside out. Then God says, forgiven and adopted. And all this is in accordance with his grace. Therefore, it nullifies any temptation we have to boast about it. We can't brag about it. We can't take credit for it. We can't look down on others who do not yet possess it. We spend the rest of our lives praising God for his grace. We spend the rest of eternity praising God for his grace. He's referred to as the God of all grace. If you think your connection to God is on any basis other than your faith in what he's done for you, you will never give him the praise which is his due. You will not sing of the glories of his matchless grace. And that's what he wants. He wants us to see when we're at our worst, he's at his best. He's the God of all grace. In order that it may be in accordance with grace, 
so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, Jews and Gentiles, who's the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So Sarah's womb was dead. She was advanced in years. So was Abraham. They were way past childbearing years. God said, come outside, look up, see those stars. Can you count them? No, I can't, said Abraham. Well, I'll tell you something, God said. So shall your descendants be. She's dead, Sarah, in terms of her childbearing capacity. And yet they accepted what God said. So shall your descendants be. You will bear a child. Abraham believed that God is the one who can bring life from the dead. He's referring to the deadness of Sarah's womb and his potential to bear, both of their potential to bear children. They're dead to that possibility, but they believed that God had the capacity to produce life from the dead. Now, what's the point of all this? Folks, Abraham and Sarah's physical problem is only presented as an illustration of our spiritual problem. Don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but apart from Christ, you're spiritually dead. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. Can you please tell me what a dead person can do on his own behalf? Nothing. That's the point. God says, you have nothing to offer me in your state of spiritual deadness. In fact, you're dead to me. You're only alive to sin. What are you going to do about it? No more could Sarah produce children than we could produce spiritual life in our own strength. And so it says this, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were, here it is, dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Abraham's physical limitation is only a representation of our spiritual limitation. But Christ could make us alive from spiritual deadness. And so Abraham's example is again given in verse 18, in hope against hope. He believed, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He saw the facts. She saw the facts. The reality stared them in the face. How could we have a child, let alone all these, this multitude of descendants? He realized his human limitations, but he also realized... God's not limited by human limitations. And so verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, he didn't waver. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver. He didn't vacillate between two opinions. He wasn't divided in his mind. Look at it. Faith says believe in the gospel, the good news of God. Believe. Reason says, I can't believe that. Faith says you're a desperately, uh, irreversibly bound sinner who owes God a debt. But he stands ready to forgive you. Faith says, I believe. 
Reason says, I can't. I can't. I won't. But Abraham didn't do that. It says he didn't waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Verse 21, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. He didn't summon up his faith by looking to his own resources. He said, I'm weak in faith. I have doubts. I don't understand all this. But he looked to the potential of, and, and, uh, and unlimited capacity of God. And he said, I'm assured, oh God, what you've promised you can do. That's what has to happen to the one who's about ready to receive Christ tonight. You look to yourself and you start talking yourself out of the best opportunity of your eternal life. You rationalize it and you think it out of existence. Not today, not today, you, not me, maybe others. I'm this, I'm that. You do all of the, go through all these gyrations. But we can learn something from Abraham. He contemplated his own body. He saw its limitations. He got over that and he said, wait just a second. But if God said we're going to bear children, surely, though I'm limited, he's not. And that's what the person about ready to accept Christ has to do. I'm limited. I'm flawed. I have hang-ups. I got more sin than, than I would care to share with any of you. But if God says that doesn't limit his capacity to be gracious and merciful to me, if God says, I'll forgive you anyway, I'm just going to stop wavering in unbelief. I'm just going to take God at his word. And so in verse 22, it says, therefore, it was credited to him, to Abraham, as righteousness. God made a promise to him. Abraham responded by believing. God responded back to Abraham by saying, your confidence in me, your trust in my word pleases me. Based upon that, I take pleasure in you forevermore. You're okay with me now. I don't see you as a debtor. Your debt is paid in full. So let me ask you as we close, what is your response to God's promise? A million years ago when I was in the military, <clears throat> I read this verse of scripture in a military barracks and it pretty much set me free. It's John chapter 5, verse 24. Here's the promise. Truly, truly. Jesus is speaking. You know, he says, truly, truly. He's really saying, listen up. He's saying, I'm not messing around. He's saying, take this seriously. Truly, truly, I say to you. If anyone, what? Even Jews? Yeah. Even Gentiles? Yeah. If anyone, here's the first thing, hears my word. I don't want to ruin your day, but you are now responsible for responding to God's offer of forgiveness because you're in earshot of these words. If anyone hears my word and, not just good enough to hear, believes him who sent me, Jesus said. If anyone hears my word, many have. You have to go further. And believes, there it is again, belief. Believes him who sent me. He has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Two of the consequences of sin, spiritual deadness, and judgment are reversed. 
If anyone hears my, who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, he doesn't come into judgment. He's passed out of death into life. Dear folks, that is the promise of God. What is your response? Your response to his promise will determine his response to you. A God who is rejected and disbelieved, a God whose promise is not taken seriously, will not force himself upon you or me. He could. He won't. I ask you tonight. This is serious business. It's cold outside. We've had crazy weather. All kinds of stuff is happening out there. Forget it for a second. What's going on in your heart? What is going on in your heart? What's your response to God's promise? You've heard. Do you believe? To believe is to take God at his word. Here's his word. If you believe him who sent me, you inherit eternal life. You do not see death. You pass out of death, out of judgment, into eternal life. It's all encapsulated in the death the burial, and the resurrection of a substitute for our sin, and his name is Jesus. Please don't walk away from the promise of God. Stop wavering in unbelief. You're killing yourself. Your mind is divided. You're a divided mind. If God said it, stop being so rational. (laughs) He He can bring life in you from spiritual deadness. I decided on September 5th, 1973 to say, God, there's a million things I don't get, but if you said you'll do this, who am I to say no to it? So in so many words, I said, I accept. (laughs) I don't know what my words were then. They probably weren't accurate, but God saw my heart, put on me a forgiven shirt, Moved in, think about that. Changed me from the inside out over 40 years ago. And if I die, when I die, I'm going to heaven. I do not deserve it. It's all in accordance with the grace of God, don't you see? It's all in accordance with the grace of God. I beg you. Don't leave this place without saying in so many words, Lord Jesus, I hear you. Come into my life. Forgive my sin. Let me be an heir of eternal life. (laughs) And give me new life right now, today. Pronounce upon me what has been pronounced on these eight who we saw earlier. The status of being now and forevermore forgiven and adopted. Be my Savior. I believe him who sent you. Pray something like that. And that gives God permission to save you. (laughs) He won't do it (laughs) against your will. Lord Jesus, one of the mysteries, if you don't mind me saying, Lord, is that you have entrusted this message to one's 
such as us, us, me. I don't have the words to persuade, to convince. I don't even think I speak clearly. But it's the message that has the power to save, not the messenger. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that the power to save your gospel would have its effect in the lives of people here tonight so that not one leaves without being certain, oh God, I have taken you at your word. I accept you as my savior. My sin is forgiven. Now help me to live for you. Oh God, in the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray you would do that here tonight in the lives of those who sorely stand in need of salvation. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.